0: Grace and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who comforts us, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Faith and love go together. If a person has faith in the gospel, then it inevitably follows that person will have love for God. He will delight in doing God's will, and this means that this person will love his neighbor. This is because faith is the means by which we receive and take hold of the loving work of Christ. Remember, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the love of Christ. This is the love of Christ's father. So from the love of Christ for us, from the love of Christ for us, flows our love for God and our neighbor. Love is bound up in devotion. We devote our lives to the things that are good, the things that are of God. We live in our vocations, the things that God has called us to be, the things that God has called us to do. That's how we are to love. We love the world as we love in the world as we live as Christians. And so you're never just a husband. You're never just a wife, you're never just a son, or a daughter. You're never just a grandma or a grandpa or a worker or a citizen. You're never just a church member. You are a Christian husband. You are a Christian wife. You are a Christian worker. You are a Christian child to your parents. You are a Christian worker. You are a Christian citizen. The work you do and your vocation is about how you delight in the gifts that God has given you. God has blessed you with people in your life. God has blessed you with the means to support yourself and to care for your neighbor. God has blessed you to be part of a country or to have employment. These are gifts from God, and you are called to live in them. And so you're going to make use of the things that God has given you differently than the unbelieving world everything from money and employment to relationships and the forgiveness of sins are going to be approached understood and lived in differently and that is because you as a christian are different God has made you into something different than the rest of the world. He has set you apart and gathered you from the nations to be his very own child. That is what the oft quoted Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 is all about. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has justified you, forgiven your sins, so that you may walk in Him with perfect joy and without fear. This is who you are. A counterexample of that would be with Joseph Stalin. As he lay dying, all of his doctors were too afraid of him to help him. He was too cruel, too selfish, too exacting in his retributions for anyone to safely serve him. And so all of his doctors sat there and watched him die. They were afraid. Imagine that with God. He is perfect. He's created us to be perfect. Yet we are fallen, damnable sinners. Yet we are created to walk in his will, doing good works. How could that ever be possible? It is only possible when we see everything that we have from God as a gift given in the grace of Jesus. It's only possible when we're justified by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God is king. God is not a tyrant. He is a loving father who forgives the sins of his children, and he makes us members of his household by paying the due penalty for our sins in his blood. He purchases you. He wins you. And in that, you are freed to live under him. You're free to serve him and to love him, to delight in his will. And in that, you are free to love your neighbor according to his will, because he has shown you goodness and mercy. Those who despise his goodness will squander his gifts, because they don't think they're actually good gifts. That's what Jesus is teaching us in the parable with the dishonest steward today. The dishonest steward, the dishonest manager, had a faulty view of his master. You see, he is a man who worked for his master, who had many wonderful riches, great gifts, wonderful things. He had so much that he had to appoint this man, the dishonest steward, to take care of all of his property and possessions. But then word comes to the master that the steward was squandering the master's possessions. We're not told exactly what he's doing with the master's riches, but it's obvious that it's not what the master wanted. We can maybe assume that he was either committing some sort of fraud or, or living extravagantly at the master's expense. But no matter what it was, the steward was caught and he was told that he could no longer serve as the steward of the master's wealth. And that put him in a tough position, because he had been fired. In reality, he could have been thrown into jail for his mismanagement. But for whatever reason, the master gives him time. He says, go collect your books, get the ledgers, bring them back to me, turn them in. The master is merciful in this, giving the steward time. And the steward uses it. He has a little debate within his own heart. He says, what should I do? I can't dig ditches. I'm too weak. Uh, and it'd be too hard i can't beg because that would be shameful to my pride and so he banks on something else he takes advantage of his master's reputation for generosity he had been trusting in his master's money and that was being taken away from him and so now he begins to trust in the thing that he should have trusted in all along and that's his master's kindness and so he calls in each of the master's clients and he says hey here's the key the steward is fired. He knows that, that the master knows that he's been fired. He knows that he's been fired. No one else knows. And so, summing his master's debtors one by one, he cancels what's likely about 500 denarii worth of products off of each account. He cancels a large portion of everyone's debt. And you might be thinking well so what the master could just change them all back there wouldn't be any harm he's the master he can raise the rent he can correct an accounting error made by a reckless employee on his way out the door but that's not the master's character and that is not what the master does and this is what any other person would do oh you messed with my ledger let me put it back and if that's what he did the steward's plan would have collapsed he didn't do that Now, the master is generous. He looks up at his former manager and he says, Hey, well played. Good job. You know me. You knew that I would have to let this stand. You knew that I would delight in forgiving these debts. And you finally understand who I am. You see, the steward, that dishonest manager, had spent his entire life delighting in his master's wealth. He took it, he squandered it for himself, he used it how he thought was best, he delighted in the money he controlled and the pleasure that it could buy him, but that's not what the Master wanted for his gifts. Rather, he wanted his wealth to be used according to his gracious character. He desired that his riches be freely given away. He wasn't hurting for money, he loved people. And so he desired that his steward would put his wealth to use in showing mercy and being generous and delighting in the master's good nature. You see, the power of money had failed the manager and threw him into ruin. He was going to be thrown into a life of debt and begging. But there's something that did not fail him, and that's the goodness of his master. He knew that his master would be generous, he knew that his master would love his tenants and all those who worked with him, and that those tenants would take care of him and take him in and offer him work. And that's what saved him. It wasn't the money, but it was the steadfast love of his master. And this shows us two very important things. First, ours is a gracious God. He desires mercy. In Hosea chapter six, God says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings this means that God desires that we see him for who he is and we place our hope in him alone and secondly we learned that God does not want us to place our hope in something called mammon see mammon is the actual word that Jesus says When he says, no servant can serve two masters, he'll either love the one or hate the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The actual word is mammon. Money is mammon. And mammon doesn't just mean like the numbers that you have in your checking account or or how many dollar bills you have in your pocket. Mammon is material wealth. It is material wealth that the world pursues. It's the control and mastery of money, but also the gaining of every personal pleasure and possession that you can get your hands on. The world seems to constantly stand in awe of mammon. The world desires mammon above everything else. That's what the world values. Ease, comfort, pleasure. Yet mammon is nothing at the end of the day. Jesus talks about mammon as it was something destined to fail. And yet, it can be a great idol. I recently read a good example of this in the Old Testament. There was a a Syrian guy called Naaman. He was a general for the Syrians, and he was rich. He was powerful, but he had one big problem. He had the leprosy. He was dying. But he received word that there was a man of God in Israel who could heal him. So he, he heard about this man of God and realized it's Elisha, the guy who followed after Elijah, and God had blessed him. And so Naaman travels down to Elisha with all sorts of gifts and money and clothing so that he could pay Elisha to help him. Naaman comes to Elisha's doorstep with servants and gold and clothing and finery and chariots and all these things. And Elisha doesn't even come out the door. He sends his servant outside and says, hey, go wash in the Jordan River seven times. And this request frustrates Naaman. He, he he refuses at first. He he thinks the Jordan's a nasty river. Why would I bathe in it? He didn't even come out and say the magic word or wave his hand over my sickness. He didn't do any cool wizard stuff. Like what's going on here? And so, after a while, he's convinced by one of his servants to give it a try. He goes and washes in the Jordan, and his leprosy is healed. And he excitedly goes back to Elisha, praising God with newfound faith in the Lord, with all of his retinue and all the people with him. And immediately he offers Elisha some of his treasures, and Elisha says, no. He simply blesses Naaman and sends him on his way with a newfound faith in the God of Israel. But Elisha had an assistant named Gehazi, and Gehazi sees in all of this a golden opportunity for himself and so after Naaman goes a certain way he runs after him and tells him that Elisha had two unexpected dinner guests show up and that he needed a a couple of talents of silver and a couple of changes of clothes to serve them and so Gehazi takes the money for himself he takes the treasures for himself and suddenly what was given by God freely It became an opportunity for Gehazi to enrich himself. And the love of money caused Gehazi to lie in the name of the living God. That's the idolatry of Mammon. Of course, God knew what had happened, and he reveals it to Elijah. And uh, very quickly, Elisha curses Gehazi, and the leprosy that infected Naaman now was on him. But you see what happens the love of wealth the love of money it's allure, that life built around mammon it's selfish it seeks the pleasure that mammon promises as mammon props itself up in our lives and it says hey I'll fix everything I'll give you comfort it says I'll solve all your problems And we'll begin to believe these promises. And we say to ourselves, if I had a million dollars, if I had more money, I wouldn't be stressed. If I had more money, then I could finally take that dream vacation. If I had more money, then my marriage would be stronger. My children would be happier. I'd have more opportunities. If I only had more money, I would not have to worry about fixing that car or paying that bill. I'd be happier, I'd be healthier. And we could even church it up a bit. If I had more money, I'd be more devout. I wouldn't have to work on the weekends. I could come to church. If I had more money, I could devote more time to the church. And I could have more time to read the Bible. I would be a better Christian if I were a wealthy Christian. And so rather than focus ourselves upon Christ and his word that forgives the sins, that brings us into eternal life, what do we do? So often we preoccupy ourselves with mammon. And it's a fruitless life. People trust in money, people trust in possessions, people trust in stuff, and then they die and they can't take it with them. Solomon's wisdom is timeless. He says, there's an evil, severe evil, which I've seen under the sun. Riches kept for their owner to his hurt, but those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there's nothing in his hand. And as he comes from his mother's womb, naked he shall return. To go as he came, and he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. See, mammon has the power to alienate our thoughts and our hearts from the one who actually saves us. It causes people to fall into all sorts of sins, not just the sin of idolatry in violation of the first commandment, but every other sin. It can lead to dishonesty lying to gain more against our neighbor. The pursuit of mammon can cause many to despise God's word on the Sabbath because hey, on weekends I can make time and a half. And I understand that some people must work on the weekends to simply survive but others don't have to. Love of mammon can cause us to despise the preaching of God's word in another way too. It can cause us to withhold our monetary support for the preaching of the gospel. And sadly sometimes people will withhold their regular offerings so they can pursue maybe personal passions or pleasures. The pursuit of money can cause others to stumble too. How many people have fought over inheritances and property? How many have denied their neighbor Christian charity in a time of need? How many people have killed for a few dollars? How many have used their money in all sorts of ill-gotten exploits of the flesh and of lust? How many people have fudged their taxes just to get a better refund? How many people have have sat around looking at those people who have money and wish they could be that person. And to this, Jesus would say, repent. You cannot serve both God and money. And so we must be wise when dealing with the mammon of this world. We must properly order it in our lives and use it wisely so that we don't fall into temptation and, and selfishness or jealousy or covetousness. We have to live in a world with money. But that does not mean that we must love that money that is in the world. That would lead to our destruction. But we must realize that all we have is given as a gift of the providence of our Father in heaven. And so we must not cling to mammon. But we must be generous in the same way that our Master is generous. Martin Luther says, he says, a Christian is not allowed to open his hand to receive and to close his hand when he's asked to give, but is required to give to the poor with a cheerful and willing heart. In this way, God wants us to serve him. See, God calls us to be generous with our mammon so that we do not fall in love with our mammon. That's the the perfect way to avoid idolatry, by the way. As he says, God, God says this, he says, if you love money, here's the quick cure to idolatry. Give the money away. Give it to somebody else. Give it to somebody who needs it. God calls us to give it away to help our neighbor and to hedge us against idolatry. He gives it, tells us to use this gift that he's given us to demonstrate love for others. He teaches us to trust in and rely upon him alone. Properly ordered, mammon is only a tool we are given in order to glorify God as we live as his servants. And so we must rest upon the generosity of our master. God desires to forgive the sins of all. God's desire is actually to save us. Money does not save, and it's a harsh master. But not with our Lord Jesus. He is willing to do anything to save his people. The, The master in our parable, he was willing to take substantial losses to save the man who wronged him. I would say that our Lord Jesus Christ is even more giving. Jesus gives more than earthly wealth to save us. He does not purchase us with silver or gold, but with his precious innocent blood and bitter suffering and death. Our God is so interested in forgiving the debt of our sins that he would humble himself to dwell among us. He would go to the cross to bear our hell. He would suffer for our greediness and the wrath and judgment of God are poured out not on me as I deserve it, but on him, he becomes the idolater. He becomes the waster. He becomes the liar. He becomes the cheater. He becomes the one who despises the word and preaching of God. He becomes the one who is lustful. He becomes all sinners and there those sinners die. Our sins die. They are forgiven. God has destroyed them. That's how generous our God is. He's performed that perfect justice, not on us, but on himself. The cost was laid on him, he bore the debt. And so we know that our master is more generous than we ever could understand, and he relents from disaster. The Lord is gracious, he is merciful, he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The riches of God's love and mercy do not end at the cross. They extend to an empty tomb, as Christ is risen for your justification, so that as he lives, we may live also." he binds himself unto us in the gift of baptism that we might experience and know the assurance of his forgiveness. And that daily we live in the riches of Christ as through sorrow and repentance and knowledge and faith of the gospel we have forgiveness of sins. When my sins terrorize me, I can say, I am forgiven by my Lord Jesus. Jesus feeds us with the words of absolution. He speaks forgiveness into our ears and says, It's done, it's finished, I forgive you. He feeds us himself in his body and blood, giving us true unity with him as we partake in the fruits of the cross. That's the riches of the gospel. And that is what you are. That is what you receive. That is what your life is to be filled with. As Christ forgives our sins, our Lord is generous. And that's the heart of it all. The dishonest manager forgave those debts of his master because he knew his master would be generous. He knew that mercy would stand. He knew his master would forgive. And so we stand rich in mercy. We are to seek the riches of his kingdom, not the ones that fade away. And though we fail with everything that he has given us, he still loves us and he keeps on giving it. He keeps on forgiving. Like the wasteful manager, we can count on his generosity to save us every time. Mammon cannot save you. The grace of God cannot be bought. The comfort of salvation cannot be obtained with cash or gifts or pleasure. Christ gives these gifts freely to his children. He purchases us not with gold or silver, but with that precious body and blood of Jesus, which today you receive in abundance. In Christ, you have more treasures than all the money on earth. And so, What God has given to us, we should be free to give to others. All that we have, God has provided. Everything from your employment, your home, your wealth, and all the things that might be lumped in that category of mammon, then also your comfort, your life, your salvation, the gifts of the gospel, These things are given by the gracious and generous hand of our Master, our God, and our Father. And so we should be free with these things. Free to forgive each other. Free to share the comfort that God has given us. We do not withhold any of it. That forgiveness, the the word implanted in our hearts, the wealth, the love, the kindness, or any other good thing, God freely gives it. Sometimes he freely gives through his stewards for the good of others. And as stewards, we are dependent on the master's generosity as the steward in our parable. And we know that our master is rich in forgiveness. Our master is rich in graciousness. Our master is quick to forgive, quick to redeem, and quick to help. That generosity of our God does not run out. He will never stop forgiving you Dear Christians, for the sake of Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are a generous and giving Master. You freely provide all that is needed for life and salvation in sending Jesus to die and rise for us poor sinners. You provide for the needs of our body, but ultimately for the needs of eternal life. Help us to delight in the true living treasure that we have so that we properly order every earthly treasure in our lives. Set everything that we have to the service of Christ and our neighbor, and make us generous as you have been generous with us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in the true faith, the life everlasting. In the name of Jesus, amen. We rise.